Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I just announced that I've created a premium subscription program for the podcast. This program is the way that you can support the podcast so that I can continue to bring you the famous guests and interviews and special episodes that you love. My podcast is totally independent and is ad-free and sponsor-free, and I want to keep it that way. By becoming a premium subscriber, you will help me do just that. And you'll get a whole bunch of extra content and goodies that will only be available to premium members. And it won't cost you much either. So please sign up at followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. That's followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. Thanks so much. And now enjoy today's episode. Hey, this is Jerry Jamont, the Groove Master, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Just did a wonderful podcast with Robert Miller, Following Your Dreams, and he really brings it out of you. Check it out. Enjoy the rest of his work. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. The sky. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I am truly honored to have as my guest today, the maestro, Ron Carter, the world's most renowned bassist. He's the most recorded jazz bassist in history and a three-time Grammy winner. He's played with everyone from Cannonball Adderley to Thelonious Monk to Roberta Flack, and of course, with Miles Davis. He was in Miles' quintet in the mid-60s along with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Tony Williams, one of the greatest bands ever. He's been on the faculty of Juilliard and Berkeley College of Music. He's been honored with cultural awards by France and Japan, and he was elected to the Downbeat Jazz Hall of Fame. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, the maestro and I are going to do what I call a song fest, going to play a handful of some of his greatest works and we'll talk about them you'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts and you also know that i like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end and i always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest and in this instance my featured song is my version of that great classic all blues that Maestro also recorded. My version is from my first album in 1994. In the Songfest portion, we'll listen to Maestro's version. So, Maestro, Ron Carter, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Good morning to you at uh, 10.02 in New York time. That's right. This is early for a jazz musician, isn't it? <laughs> no, man. I was up early this morning. Good for you, because most guys that I know in that field they just sleep late. They don't get up until the afternoon. No, man. By that time, the day is twice gone. I like your attitude. All right. I have to ask the question. Okay. What was it like when you got that call from Miles Davis to join his quintet? 
Well, I didn't actually get a call with a, the a four paragraph story. You have time? Sure. Okay, well, I was working at the time with Art Farmer. He had a quartet working at the club called The Half Note down on Spring and Hudson. Uh-huh. Art Farmer, Flumpet, he's playing a combination from Flugelhorn and Trumpet that he made up. Jim Hall and Walter Perkins, a drummer from Chicago. We had two weeks at this club called The Half Note. At, at, at the time, that was what they all did. There was never one. There was always two weeks or more. So we finished the first tune of the first set. And uh, Miles walked in, I guess, during the course of the first set. And when it was finished, he stood by the jukebox that they had in those days, as you remember, those environments. And he called me over to talk with him. I said, hello, Mr. Davis, how are you? We had a nice cordial greeting. He said, my band is breaking up Jimmy Cobb and, and went, uh, Jimmy Cobb and uh, Paul Chambers, who was a band at that time, are leaving to join the quartet with um, West Montgomery. And I'm putting together a new band to go to California in three days. Can you join my band? And I said, well, Mr. Davis, I'm working with Art Farmer for the next two weeks. If you will ask our farmer for permission for me to leave, I'll join your band. If not, I'll be when you get back and we can work it out, you know. So he said, okay. And uh, he went over to Art Farmer, who was cleaning out his tune, doing fooling with his horn, doing something else. And they had a, 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 a very, uh, I'm sure, word, word worthy conversation, <laughs> knowing <laughs> both of those guys. And uh, so he came back and said, well, my Art said it's okay. So I joined the band. In the meantime, I finished the week and, and Art Farmer was, he was kind of astounded that I would, that I would, uh, I guess, on my commitment. I said, Art, man, I told you I was going to be here for two weeks, so I was going to be here for two weeks. And the only thing that would change that is my illness or something coming along that will release me from my commitment to you if you approved. I think that also set the tone for my relationship with Miles, who trusted me to do uh, kind of the business end of the band, like the payroll, I'd pay the advances to the guys, I'd check the hotel accommodations, those kind of business-like things that he assigned to me once he realized that he didn't know everybody else, but he thought I'd be the guy who'd handle that kind of financial responsibility in terms of actually having the cash to pay these guys off and not running off on the first thing going the wrong way from the band. Art Farmer and I ultimately did several records together, and uh, I cherish his friendship just because he played so great, but our relationship on the really personal level, it jumped about this far. Because uh, Art said, man, why would you do that? I said, Art, I told you. I'm committed to you and Jim and Walter for the next two weeks. Only thing will change that is I'm getting sick or, you to, or, or, or something else comes along. Well, something else came along. And I wasn't going to go until you said it was okay. That's a four-paragraph story. <laughs> what an honorable position. So did Miles know of you? He must have. I mean, if he came to the club and he asked you to join the band, he must have known you. He must have seen you before. I assume that's the case, but I never asked that. Really? It didn't matter. He's, he called I, me for the gig, and if he called somebody else, they weren't available. I was the next guy in line, wherever that was, first to third. I was okay. He, just, he, he found his way to where I was working on his own. I guess it didn't matter what the reason was. The fact that he got there and he asked you is what counts. Well, I know the reason, so I could do the job. Yeah, you certainly can. I'm still working at it. <laughs> All right, so tell me what it was like. You're playing with his great quintet. You're also the paymaster, which I like that story. Okay. Tell me what it was like making albums with Miles and that quintet. Well, a couple of things come to my mind. Initially, we were sight reading the arrangements, the music. We would each bring our charts into the date. And the first thing that we would do was make sure that the penmanship, which is pretty poor at the time without the computer input and stuff, we could all read the other guy's handwriting. 
it's a, it's a G flat or a G flat seven, you know. And the second thing was make sure we all had our individual parts to give the band. So Tony wrote out five parts for his tune. Wayne wrote out 10 parts for his tunes. I had my two parts, stuff, whatever it took. We all made sure that everyone in the band had their own music to give to the other guys in the band. We would talk it through at one point. We have a one run through to talk about the groove and the tempo. Then we record it. Next tune. There was a process for the three or four records we made in the studio. My ultimate regret, Rob, is that we never got a chance to play that stuff live. There were a few recordings of the band playing Gingerbread Boy or, or, or Wayne's tunes or Herbie's tunes because Miles said it was too hard. Really? He said he didn't want to do that. He wanted to get this stuff going. So for the next three or four years, as the library was getting full, the performance library didn't get significantly bigger. So I thought whatever development the band evolved into, whatever music we played was due to having exhausted whatever the normal report would be on the All Blues or, or So What or those other songs, we had to find a way, we thought, to put a new dress on the old model. And uh, we, as a result, was whatever we did was whatever we did. You know, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, the, the musicianship that you're talking about with these people is off the charts. And I can just imagine what it must have been like to be in the recording studio and you're coming in and you're doing this. Basically, it's one take, it sounds like. Am I right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, a, a CD set called Freedom Jazz Dance where they actually recorded the tunes. The moment the band walked in the door, the tape was rolling. <laughs> and you would hear ex examples of Miles talking to the band and us responding to his commentary. Miles would say, uh, hey, Ron, try this. <laughs> I said, okay, but it's the wrong tempo for this groove. And uh, hey, Tony, try this. I got something better, Miles, let's try this. This went on for the whole session, and it's all, all, all documented. Did he listen to you when you made the suggestions back? Yeah, man, I'm the only, I'm, I'm the only bass player in the band. What could he do to me? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, let's go on from there, because, I mean, when you start out with Miles in an interview like this, there's not too many places I can go to that's higher than that. <laughs> but you have played with so many people across so many eras and types of music. And I know at one time you started playing the electric, although you were known as an upright player. Was that because the era just demanded it? Well, at, at the time, Monk Montgomery, who you may know from the early Lionel Hampton days, was the first place player to really make the bass, electric bass present. You know, I mean, really there. And uh, the commercial recording scene in New York was booming. I mean, it was really recording every 20 minutes of record with me. And the producers weren't sure what to do with this new sound, with the electric bass or the upright. So the five bass players in New York who were really busy playing upright, we had to go out and buy Fender basses and amps, because the studios had no amps. Really? So you saw these guys rolling walking down Broadway, a robbery with a... <laughs> rolling their amps? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like a, a, a trio with one guy, you know? Oh, man. So we had something called the New York Amp Club. Me, Richard Davis, Bill Hinton, George Vivian, a couple of other guys would stock the, the busiest studios in New York with our amps to record the electric bass. That's crazy. But clearly, Robert, those guys were so far ahead of most of us in playing electric bass because they had spent their lives learning how it worked. Uh, the the pre-Jerry Jamats and, and, and uh, Chuck Rainey's and all those guys, they, were, they already had something to do. They understood some of the options. 
we were just hanging on the side with this guy on the right or left. Electric, that was our choice. We don't like this. <laughs> okay. So while I made some records on electric bass and had fun doing it, I was still trying to find out what could the upright do that I thought I could hear it make it do. And I'm still kind of in that zone. Every night I go to work, I look for a surprise from the upright. But I think, again, those guys are, are just the Jaco Pistorius and all those later, the later guys, you know, Nathan East. They're all such wonderful players on that instrument. They already had a great, a great grounding in what the choices were. You know? Most of us guys who were doubling, we're still trying to figure out how the upright worked. Now we're thrown into this commercial world where we've got a 30-second take, we've got to do in an hour. You know the deal back in the day. Yes, yes. Uh, so I think most of those guys like me, although they didn't say it out loud, they weren't very, they weren't very comfortable playing electric bass. And they were comfortable just to do the 30-second spot. And I want to find out, man, what could, the, what could the upright do? Can they do certain sounds? Can they play certain ranges? Can they get a certain bounce to the beat? Can they, a certain ballad sound? That I thought maybe I had a better chance of making the bass do something that maybe no one had discovered yet. Okay, I'm still figuring that out. Well, you've been doing that for a long, long time. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. So I'm curious, during this period, I mean, you've been playing for so long, you've gone through different iterations and different musicians. I want to ask about a couple of other guys that you played with. Tell us about Thelonious Monk. What was that like? Well, again, there's another four-paragraph footnote. Uh, Sam Jones was the bass player at the time with Spex Wright on drums and Charlie Ross, of course. And then Sam got sick for the gig that they had in New York at a place called Circle in the Square down in the village. And so I get a call from Sam and said, uh, uh, Brother Ron, I'm, I got the flu. Can you make this gig for me? I said, yeah, who is it? He said, Thelonious Monk. I said, well, if you, if you trust me, I hope he does too. So I get to the gig and I, I meet him. Mr. I said, Mr. Monk, I'm Ron Carter and I'm subbing for uh, Sam Jones who's sick. He said, do you know my songs? I said, well, I know most of them. I said, well, we'll see tonight how many you don't know. So, <laughs> you're back at work. For next week, he's in Philadelphia at a place called The Show Place on, on downtown uh, Philly. And uh, there's, there's two shows a night. And, uh, and I'm going to Manhattan School of Music at this time, spring of 1961. And uh, I can't quit classes because I got 8 a.m. theory class and I got an orchestra rehearsal, you know. So what we would do, his, his, his uh, patron, uh, Princess uh, Nika, as they call him, 
he would pick me up at my house at uh, 6.30. We'd drive to Philadelphia. It's an hour and a half drive from New York. We'd do two sets a night. Get back on the Rolls Royce, drive back to New York about 2 o'clock in the morning. Go to my 8 a.m. theory class. Do the same thing for a week. Except on Saturday, we had a matinee. So I'd get to leave the gig on Saturday night. Get a hotel for the matinee Saturday. And matinee and the gig Saturday night. And I would get right back to New York at Monk and, and Baroness. It was an amazing experience, just because of his comfort of the right tempo. I never played with a drummer who had that still had, had brushes like Specs Wright. And of course, Charlie Rouse was his own man on saxophone. It was I was going to school free. I was going to school that night with, at, at night with Monk and the day for Manhattan. So it was a great, great experience, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I can imagine. All right, tell me this. For anybody that's not a, a working musician, you're in music school, you get called to sub for Thelonious Monk, you go down there, and uh, you have no rehearsal, you're, no. you're right out there doing your thing, he's asking you, do you know my songs, and yes. maybe you know some, but you don't know everyone, are you nervous? No. I got the call for the gig, that took, took all the nervousness away, I felt someone who ever recommended me felt that I could handle whatever was coming up, so no, I didn't get nervous at all. What a fantastic. I got nervous getting back to Manhattan in time for the classes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's too much. All right, one more. Tell me about Cannonball Adderley. You went into the footnotes this time. Okay, do you mind another one? No, that, I want the full notes. Okay. Uh, Cannonball had a, a quintet with him, Nat, of course, Victor Feldman playing piano and vibes, Sam Jones and Lou Hayes, a wonderful friend and a great drummer with the band. So we're going to Europe, April of 1961. And I get this call from Cannonball's management, John Levy, who was my friend ultimately, who said the Cannon was going to Europe for two and a half weeks, and he wants Sam Jones to play cello on one tune a night. Was I available? I said, what, what Mr. Levy will have to call the Manhattan School of Music if I can get out, because that's the same time for my, my concert to get to play to graduate with a master's degree. So I said, he said, well, call me back. So I called Manhattan, I talked to the uh, president or the school dean, and uh, they said it was okay, but I had to come back. When I got back for this tour, I had to do a jury anyway, a concert. I said, okay. So I get to Europe with Cannonball, and the, 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 fact, the format is they do three or four tunes, and they call up Sam Jones. He puts the bass down and picks up a little cello, and I played bass for that tune. One tune a night for about 10 concerts, all in different cities. So it was my first time in Europe, and uh, we get back to New York, and the film and some record and someone else is, and, and they make this record and I'm in there for one tune again, you know. You get back to Manhattan, the guy said, well, we made a change in plan and you have to do a jury in the next, with someone in the next three days to get your degree. I said, well, man, I have no library, I have no tunes, uh, who's a piano player? He said, well, sit, sit in your bed there with the pianist. See, he'll kill the company, just find something to play and he'll do it. Ultimately, I found a, a transcription of a, a, a Mozart piece, something like da 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 whatever that is. I found the bass transcription of that melody. I said, Mr. Bender, we, we're stuck with this process. We have to get this done. So I practiced like three hours on this at home just now. Here's the piano part. We've got to go in there right now and do this piece. Can you do that for me? I said, sure, let's go. So we went in and I played this piece, and, and uh, I got my degree. But I didn't get the sheepskin for another two weeks because they thought I owed them a lesson. <laughs> so <laughs> it turned out they owed me $65. So I got the sheepskin ultimately and the degree. But you got the diploma. Yes. <laughs> That's what counts. Fascinating stories. You're fantastic. Hi, everybody. Just a quick reminder to please sign up 
to become a premium subscriber to the podcast. By doing so, you'll support the podcast and help us to remain independent, ad-free, and sponsor-free. And you'll get a whole bunch of extra benefits. Just go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. Thanks so much. All right, let's go into the Songfest portion because I want people to hear some of the work that you have done. And I've got playing now underneath us Seven Steps to Heaven, which you did with Miles Quintet. us a little bit about that song and and anything else about the miles era for you that you haven't mentioned already it was our first recording with the quintet uh as quiet as is known robert uh the first new band miles sent after the first quintet was a sextet it was a uh, miles on trumpet george coleman frank strozier from chicago playing alto harold mayburn playing piano and jimmy cobb played the drum set while miles was fin finished up his what he owed miles to do and me that was the first quintet the first sextet after the new quintet when we got to new york was that sextet ever recorded not legally maybe there's a recording somewhere <laughs> but you know how that stuff goes man yeah 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 let's uh, so get them to get to new york finally and the band is now herbie and tony taking place of uh, uh of course uh, jimmy cobb and harold mayburn and uh george coleman's still the tender player so we that, that was the first of the new quintets right Seven Steps to Heaven was they've done two versions, one in California and half in New York. The California band is Frank Butler, a really great drummer, Victor Feldman, and we played uh, Baby Won't You Please Come Home and a couple of ballads. That's my first time meeting Frank, and, and man, I thought Specs Wright played great brushes. Frank was just incredible. So again, I'm going to school free, Robert, and learning all these things to do and with these guys, how they tune the drums and where they place the beat and, and, and the what questions they ask, and, and uh, can you do this? Can you play right here? Yeah, I can do all that stuff, man, but let me, <laughs> you're the teacher. Don't ask me that kind of stuff. Come on, you know? You get to New York, and we do the rest of the Seven Steps to Heaven, and Seven Steps one of the first records that we did with the quintet in New York. Uh, that's one of the tunes that most college kids who do uh, jazz courses have to listen to that tune because it's their impression. It's a nice piece. The bass sounded great that day. Tony and I were just understanding what we did individually and collectively. So great introduction to the new quintet. Fantastic. Was this kind of another one-take situation, or was it multiple? No, no. One, one and a half takes. <laughs> Unbelievable. For anybody that's not a musician, you can't appreciate just how difficult it is to get something as magnificent as that in one take. All right, let's go on to another one. This is Calling Me Softly by Roberta Flack one of my favorite songs of the 1970s or really any era just a gorgeous song and her performance and it features mr ron carter the maestro on bass i heard he sang a good song i heard he had a style and so i came 
Tell us about that. Well, Roberta was discovered in Washington by Les McCann, basically. And he convinced uh, Joel Dorn, who was the A&R man for Atlantic Records, to hire this person in Washington, you know, Roberta Flack, and give her a date. Well, ultimately, they worked out what the details were, details were, whatever they were, and they came to Roberta about her trio to New York. Atlantic Studios on 60th Street and Broadway on the third floor to make this record. Well, at, at some point, Joe, the producer, Joe Dorn, thought that they weren't making any progress, and he put together another band for Roberta with another bass player, another drummer, and guitar player. I guess she said it was okay because they weren't making any progress to make this record, and it was me, Ray Lucas, a wonderful drummer, and Bucky Pizzarelli. So we get to the studio, and Roberta, we say hello and talk the basic understanding of this, her date, and our music and stuff like that, and we get a sound and we make the record. One of the things I liked about her, Barbara, that she knew what sounds, what voicing she want on piano, because she played piano. Right. And she knew the arrangements, because they were her arrangements. But she hadn't known of them by the New York players, the, the older guys, the more experienced recording guys. And again, they were not a lot of takes, because she was so sure what she wanted to hear and the band was so tuned into making her sound like she made the right choice by calling these guys the sub for her band. Uh, and, and again, the bass sounded great that day, man. Absolutely. But those are kind of days when it'll go by itself. All you got to do is put the right finger down and <laughs> the magic takes over. So it's a wonderful record. And one of, my, one, of my, one of my greatest pleasures was making her glad that Jill made the right choice to call these strangers to her to make her music. Well, as I said, it's a gorgeous song gorgeous recording and uh, you're right the bass sounds fantastic on it <laughs> all right let's move to another one i wanted to kind of bridge errors here and i know you played with freddie hubbard and there was a song called red clay which was one of my favorites from the 70s cti records Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, this is footnote day, so here's another one. I think this is the right one where Lenny White was working with Freddie at night in the club, and he was so excited to make this record with these guys who, who were his, his mentors, his favorite players at Rudy's Van Gelder's studio, he bought his drum set. Well, he had a tin can, oil can made for a bass drum, and that bass drum was not recording the way Rudy Van Gelder wanted to sound. So after three or four takes, Rudy gets pretty frustrated and, and says, uh, guys, look, we either, get it, either, either use my bass drum or I'm not going to record anymore. So I said, Lenny White, let's, tell, let's come, step outside, just me and you, let's talk this option down here. So I talked to him, I said, Lenny, now, if you really want to make this record, I mean, if you really care about this record and the music, you leave that bass drum outside and use Rudy's bass drum for the record. So he, gets, he then said, all right, Lenny, come on. You want to make this record, man? Yeah, man. Well, let's get inside. Well, leave your bass drum here near the, near the, near the trash can. <laughs> let's go inside and make Rudy's bass drum. The Rudy's bass drum had a, had a palm tree on it, one of those kind of old-fashioned bass drums. But it sounded great for Rudy. And he wasn't going to have anything but that on a record with his name as an engineer. We get inside. We finally decide that this is where it's going to go. 
And Freddie brings out this music with no part, just the melody. And Freddie played really good piano, really good. And he's playing really uh, the, the, the change of the sunny, actually. For anybody that doesn't know, I mean, he was known as the, as a trumpeter. Yeah, man, he played good piano. Okay. So he said, okay, we're going to play this tune. This is the melody. Hey, Ron, give me an intro. <laughs> I said, okay, what's, what's the melody like? And he plays the melody. I said, let's go, let's go to work. And that record with the bass line, do good, do, do, do good, do. Everybody mm -hmm. had to play that line. And I was surprised yep. that it took off because it was just something I just picked up at the moment because I had to get this record. They started, we'd been, we'd been in that studio hour and a half and had made no music, nothing. Because the bass drum issue with, with Rudy Van Gelder. So uh, we got it done. It turned out to be a pretty nice record. And Lenny was pleased with the results with the bass drum. <laughs> you know, it's one of those songs, one of those records where you're right, the bass kind of sets the tone for the entire song. And as I was coming of age musically, that's what I went to, okay? Because the melody is great, but your bass part, again, sets the tone for the whole song. And, and they, they were, if we were not close before this date, we were like, we were like this because the pressure was on and now. We had to get this done in a little time. And those guys came through like diamonds. Unbelievable. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, Rudy Van Gelder had this little studio in New Jersey and he became like the biggest recorder of jazz, didn't he? Absolutely. What was it like to be in there? Was it a trailer kind of thing or did he have a real studio? No, man. He had this gorgeous dome ceiling studio, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, he had two pianos in there, and he would take off the labels of all of his gear. No one could find out what he was using because the labels were all gone. No, no, no. <laughs> he deliberately took off. He didn't want anyone to steal his equipment that make his recording sound like that. Eccentric. He had gloves. He touched the microphone. Well, these, these are work gloves. If you touch the microphone, the date's over. <laughs> no, don't blow smoke in it. The date's over. You're not playing the piano. Don't play the piano. It, it really is strict rules. You got the great sound of all those records. He set the standard of recording jazz to this day. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that he uh, was such a fuss pot with all the other stuff, though. Oh, man. Yeah. No one went this. If you weren't playing, you didn't go into the studio. You didn't go to the control room. He couldn't touch anything, huh? No, not at all. No. Mm -mm. Remarkable. All right, let's go to the last one. This is your version of All Blues. It's a great classic. It was one of the first songs I ever recorded, again, back in 1994. Tell me about your recording and uh, how you feel about that song. Well, you know, that was one of the, the songs in the Jazz Bible. Yeah. There's no question about that one. And so what? There was a new basis for the Jazz Bible and the new uh, real books that came out. Those two tunes had to be in the real book. And being in the band at those times for five and a half years, I had a pretty chance to, to figure out how it's supposed to work. You're playing it every night. Five and a half years, you figure out some things that make it take another shape nightly. 
fortunately for us, me in this case, Herbie and Tony were amenable to my my gambling. I said, guys, I'm, I'm, I, and I wouldn't tell them because I wouldn't know until we got to the date. But what, what, what was the tune in the program? Was what was a fast tune before a ballad? I was waiting. All these events took place before we played this tune. Would determine what my approach would be and how the bass sounded. If it was my bass or bass du jour, or the strange bass, you know. And, and uh, I just tried a different. The first note doesn't have to be G. Now, would it would would be natural work, or would it F sharp work? That's, here it comes, guys. Here's, here's a downbeat, but it's F sharp. It's not G, you know. So it's still kind of a harmonic experiments and experiences that I had a chance to experiment before we did my version later on, and I think that because I had kind of gotten a reputation of finding, in this case, a different first note of the piece. Uh, they expected the first note of this piece to be as uh, 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 as much as a Carterism as to play G, you know. And uh, I liked the way this bass sounded that day. The band understood what I was hoping they would grasp. And again, the recorded sound is really re wonderful. So I'm very happy with this version. You know, you made me think of uh, a video that I saw that Herbie Hancock made where he was talking about when he played with Miles kind of the first time maybe. But what he was saying was that at some point he hit what he considered to be a wrong note. And he thought that he had ruined the song. And uh, Miles just adjusted to it. And he said, I learned from that basically there's no such thing as a wrong note. It's all how you relate to it thereafter. You agree with that? No. <laughs> I played some notes that didn't work. <laughs> my job, my job is to find out where does this note belong? Uh -huh. Right here is not the right place for it. So in that case, it's a wrong note for me. But it's a good note. I found out where it belongs. So I've practiced on the gig and said, well, this F sharp doesn't belong here. It belongs over here. Here it comes. Uh -huh. That's it. Yeah. Good for you. Listen, I feel like we could go on forever. Your stories are just fantastic. And it's just been an amazing thing to talk with you. We have been speaking here with the maestro, Ron Carter. Ron, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's just been amazing. Thanks for the invitation. And we'll do this again when I'm uh, before breakfast. I had a great meal and I'm really relaxed to hear. And then so I can do this when I'm hungry. <laughs> I would love to do that. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the podcast. It's my version of All Blues. I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. And thanks for supporting the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber. Sign up at followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. The sky and you and I see a sky and you and I are all blue, all shades, all Some blues are sad 
and summer glad Dark and sad Or bright and glad They're all blue All shades All hues All blues mm, A color A color are more than a color There are a mount of pain a taste of strife a sad refrain against which life is played Blues can be the living dues we all got to pay Sad. Some shades of blue is there, blue heaven, blue, all blues. The sea, the sky, and you and I, sea and sky, and you and I. Shades all oh. 